Apoptosis going mad, my liver's gonna fail. Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails. Well, say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea. I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry. Of stardust and chemistry. Hello and welcome back to Cowboy Chemistry, where we talk about the wilder days of chemistry. My name is Dylan Gardner, pronouns are they, them. Uh, I am a a PhD candidate, Texas Tech, and my guest today is again Kristen Barron, uh, a novel, I call her a novel, a novice radio chemist, uh, and hopefully a future chemistry undergrad. Hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, I believe in you. I'm sure it'll happen. Oh yeah, I'm very <laughs> excited. Although, like I said, I'm still getting, I'm still confused about these mole things, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> um, so before we get into the episode, how are you doing? You excited to keep talking about Liza Meitner? I am, and if you can see, you can't, y'all can't see my shirt, but Dylan can, and it says science with a big, huge nuclear cloud in the background. So, because we're about to get to the interesting bits today, I also wanted to point out two things. I went to the tech stacks today, mm-hmm. or not today, this weekend, and it is insane to me the chemistry section that they have. And one of the coolest things that I saw is, like, they have stuff from, like, the 1800s about chemistry. And there was the British Journal of Chemists or Chemistry or something. And it was, like, from 1910 through, like, the 1950s. So, like, I'm pretty sure I could have pulled those books out and actually read Mm -hmm. about this stuff that we're talking about in what feels like real time, which is really interesting. I did not do that. I really needed to investigate the cryptozoology section of the stacks. (laughs) I needed to know if y'all's big foot collection had gotten bigger and um it's still very paltry but it's bigger than it was 10 years ago so in in case you were curious about that Mm -hmm. next time i'll get to the chemistry but it's just a lot of chemistry oh yeah and the other thing i wanted to point out is um i was poking around today because i got here a little early and i just walked up and down the halls and there are just two doors down from us there are two rooms that say watch out radioactive stuffer in this room, which is crazy to me that, like, we're doing this whole podcast about stuff, radioactive chemicals that they are just figuring out back, like, a hundred years ago, and now we're just sitting in a room two doors down from just radioactive chemicals for whatever reason they're studying them, and I think that's pretty cool and crazy, and they had no idea what, like, the capacity of those elements Mm -hmm. back then and now we know so much about them but we're still massively researching so i'm excited i'm super excited to get into this heck yeah i'm i'm about to leave for a conference i literally leave tomorrow Uh um and yeah like you said like the capacity of the things i'm very excited to like hear all the new research because it's a lot of f element chemists i just cannot chemistry is so encompassing and like in this building they have all these signs with all the research they're doing and it's like it's a lot (laughs) (laughs) like I mean you you know doctors have their specialties but you kind of like as a human have some vague idea of what like a podiatrist does but like chemists man y'all are a breed of your own like (laughs) y'all get very specific with things and like you said F um, F block elements F block elements I don't even know what that is so those are um, lanthanides and actinides. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. That's what the radioactive chemicals break down into? 
So uh, most lanthanides are not radioactive, but all, um, I think all actinides are radioactive. Nice. So, um, but any any element above ninety two is is radioactive. You should, you should give me a brief about that when you get back. And in case y'all didn't know this, the way Dylan and I met, like one of the first times we met, I was asking them a million questions about (laughs) radioactivity and and there was a specific question I had, I can't remember the time, it's been a few years, uh, about radioactivity and they were like, "Uh, I'm not sure, I'll have to get back to you on that. So this is like... Like kind of a part of the things that they tell me about because I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And yeah, I'll anyway. have to tell you about my the one talk I'm really excited for is just uh, is from uh, Lady Polly Arnold, and uh, you should look her up. She's cool too. Done. But um, uh, she's giving a talk called "Does Anybody Want a Radioactive Catalyst?" Yes. <laughs> right. We do. Yes. Yes. Can we do that, please? <laughs> um, yeah. So. Uh, Where did we'll, we leave off last time with Lysa Meitner? Yes. So when we left off, uh, Adolf Hitler is was sworn in as the new Chancellor of Germany. And we all know how wonderful that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and colleagues and friends of Lysa Meitner, specifically folks like Einstein and other Jewish, uh, German-Jewish scientists, were concerned for their safety. Um, they got fired. Uh, a lot of them went ahead and left the country. Um the German Capitol building was set on fire, and so President von, President von Hindenburg had declared a state of emergency until further notice, which is a terrible idea. Because <laughs> that's like indefinite martial law. Yes. Um, and anyone deemed undesirable um, was placed under arrest, which was about 800,000 people um, were jailed or sent to concentration camps. In Germany? Mm-hmm. At this time? Mm-hmm. 800,000 people is like a lot of people for the, Germany, which isn't like a huge country compared to America. But again, these people were considered undesirable, right? They were already considered criminals. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was probably like, this is the point where like the people with the mental health issues and uh, IDD issues and... I don't even know if it was that. It was usually a, a lot of political people. So like oh. communists, um, socialists, they, they were very... Uh, they, they were targeted early. Any, you know, people basically um, protesting the government were a lot of the first people targeted. Really? Yeah. Golly. Like I said, like World War Two is really just like I don't. I like to know like the mm-hmm. stuff that happened afterwards or what, like the chemistry or just the interesting things that came out of it. But the actual the happenings, it's mm-hmm. it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Anyway. Um. And I'm trying to make it condensed just because, like, it's not really about right. World War II, but it is about how how, how sh- it affects Liza Meitner, because Liza Meitner is considered Jewish. She doesn't consider herself Jewish, right. but she is Jewish, right. like, ethnically. So, right. um, but yeah, so during this time, um, Otto Hahn actually wasn't even in Germany. <laughs> Good for him. Uh, he was in New York, uh, leaving Liza Meitner in charge of the KWI, so Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, if you... Need a, need a reminder. Um, this uh, um, this time, you know, again, uh, the first Jewish scientist to officially, like, leave Germany, as far as we're aware, um, was Leo uh, Silzard. Um, he wrote later that it was uh, quite clear what was going to happen. Like, he thought it was pretty obvious. Um, uh, but Liza Meitner continued her duties at the KWI. Um, 
she and a lot of scientists kind of um, believed that logic and reason would prevail, like, um, that things would, like, calm down again. Um, and, like, you know, keep in mind a lot of these folks lived through World War One, and, like, right. World War One was, like, crazy, you know, like, from that perspective, like, they had went through World War One. it was a terrible time, they went through this horrible depression, and so, like, they're like, it's it's still the same. You we know? can't do this again. Like, we're not crazy. No one is crazy enough to do this again. And it's like, But what? it's not even doing it. The thing is, like, they didn't see that how it was different this time in the sense of, like, the targeting right. of Jewish people. Right. It wasn't, like, a large-scale thing. It was, Yeah, I understand. You know, like, it, um, I don't think people quite thought that that would help. Like, some people, I don't know if it was cognitive dissonance or just... You know, you want to believe the best in people. Yeah, I think we need to stop doing that because I feel like logic and reason, like, literally never wins out. And typically people who say that they're dictating their actions on logic or reason, they're absolutely not. It's all about their knee-jerk emotional reaction. And the moment someone says, oh, logic and reason, I'm like, no, no. Mm -hmm. Humans are emotional creatures. We've got to learn to navigate that. And if you are not acknowledging that part of yourself, this is a red flag in a danger zone. Let's run. Let's not do that. Yeah. This is too much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so in by night... By April of 1933, a civil ordinance was put into effect um, called the Law for the Reestablishment of the Professional Civic Service. So essentially, um, this allowed for the firing of non-Aryan academics and broadly for political reasons. So essentially, if you disagreed with the politics of the Nazi regime, they could fire you. So uh, I think I jumped the gun earlier. So this is when Albert Einstein and other Jewish academics were fired. Um, the only exceptions were made for those with exceptional military service. So someone like Fritz Haber, mm -hmm. um, he actually got an exception. He wasn't fired, um, but he did resign. Right. Absolutely. Good so, for him. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> good for him. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Fritz Haber is a very controversial character because he's literally the guy who invented chemical warfare. Oh, really? So yeah. I don't know anything about him. But yeah. he resigned, but he also created chemical warfare. How did they get their hands on the chemicals if he resigned? So chemical warfare was invented during World War One. So oh, that's why that's, that's why he right. had the mustard gas. We were talking about that last time. My yeah. Bad. So that's that was his exceptional military service. So they were I gonna see. let him keep his job, um, but then he can, he resigned. He ends up resigning, um, and um, he also ends up leaving the country. That's good and weird and uh, yeah okay. Um. So, because a lot of people, you know, he was also Jewish, and so a lot of people did not like him. He, you know, there was right. definitely probably pressure on him to leave. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because he was, he, I believe he was in charge of the KWI at the time. So, like, it's not, it does not look good for, for a, you know, for... A Jewish man who they, yeah. You know, like, there was a lot of political pressure, and I'm sure he felt a lot of threat to leave, you know, right. even if he wasn't... Even if he was granted an exception for his military service, um, even if he hadn't been fired now, he absolutely would have been um, a target had he stayed. Right. And had he, I mean, and they were probably just looking for any reason to get rid of him. So if he had mm -hmm. spoken up in any way, shape, or form, he'd have been on the back of a train mm -hmm. real quick. Yeah, because a lot of people, especially Fritz Haber, like, he very much viewed himself as a German. And so, like, for him to be treated this way and for people of Jewish descent to be treated this way, he felt very betrayed, of Absolutely. course. Absolutely. Um, 
yeah. So uh, it's very interesting. His life what is very interesting because, like, you know, he again he invents chemical warfare, right? Mm-hmm. And then he like gives his entire life and being to his country to a certain degree and invents these horrible weapons and like, you know, and then as he's you know an older man. His country's like, oh, you're fired, get out, kind of thing. Yeah. You I, know what I mean? Like, it's just... I just think it's so funny that, like, had they not... Come, like, it seems like a lot of the really smart people in the German society at this time were of Jewish descent. Yes. And had they not targeted the Jews... Like, if they just not targeted that one demographic... Like, target everyone else. They're all free game, but just kept them in the fold. They might have actually, like, won the war mm-hmm. because all those science- scientists defected to the U.S. and Britain and developed their stuff for us. And it, that was, like, the like in retrospect. <laughs> I know this sounds so horrible, but that was the dumbest move Germany could have made. They could have been... We could be, like, the United States of Germany right now if they had just not ostracized their Jewish populations. Yeah, and, and, I mean, you'll really see how this affects the outcomes of World War II by the end of this story. Like, the fact that they um, target Jewish scientists so heavily, because another thing is, like, the Nazi regime was very anti-intellectual. They did not like academics. Right. Um, so they already didn't like academics, and I don't then know any, that's like so weird. That I've never heard of a whole group of political people being anti-academic. <laughs> that is not something that ever happens anymore. We've totally gotten over that. We totally use our facts and logic over everything. This is not familiar. You're gonna have to keep going <laughs> with this. <laughs> okay, but. Let's get back. Sorry. No, you're good. It's a it's a good uh, segue or a good uh, parallel, like parallel. But yeah, so a lot of the people that did not get fired immediately were not German citizens. So if you weren't a German citizen, this law didn't really apply to you. Good. So no. I don't know. Sorry. Keep going. Um, but a lot of people read between the lines and were quickly looking for jobs elsewhere. Yes. Um, so Otto Frisch, uh, Otto Robert Frisch, which was um, Liza Meitner's nephew, if you remember, um, he was able to find a job about six months later in the UK. Um, in the summer of 1933, Liza um, receives a questionnaire from the Ministry of Education on her racial heritage. The questionnaire put it on record that she was a non-Aryan member of staff at the KWI. So essentially, this is like the first time, like I'm sure people like knew, but like like the government actually like sent out questionnaires to all the academics to say if you were of Jewish descent or of Aryan descent. So what was like what kept people from just straight up lying about this stuff? Do you know? I is that outside of the scope. Yeah, that's not something I necessarily know. I don't know if they. Because, again, like, I don't know if people, how how much investigating is done, and, like, Because, I mean, I just straight up would have lied. I would have been like, yeah, totally Aryan. But I guess they might have asked you to, like, prove that. From... I was going to say, like, because if they, if they, like, I don't know what their investigation was of that, or, you know. Um, yeah, so, of course, you know, um, Liza Meitner gets asked later in life, you know, why she didn't take this time to, like, leave leave Germany like she doesn't leave Germany at this time right when a lot of people are um and she basically says you know, she had made her professional reputation in Germany right. um that she had seen you know she had seen political turmoil throughout World War One and was determined to not let anti-semitism drive her away from her responsibilities and like her life 
Right. Um, I mean, it, it took her 20 years to get paid from these people. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to start over somewhere else and take another 20 years. Like, she's already 40. Didn't she be 60 before she got paid again? This is, I understand. Mm-hmm. So at this point, she's about 50. Okay. Yeah, I I think if I get the timeline right, so she's she's in her fifties, you know. Yeah, so she'd be seventy before she got paid again. Yeah, um, and in the other thing is like she really speaks German and French, like those are her two main languages. Right. And she really wanted to work in German, like you know, to to go somewhere that they spoke German. Like, if she wanted to move, that's where she would want to go. But a lot of people were going to the UK or other English speaking places, and she didn't speak a lot of English. So. What was she again? She was French, right? She's Austrian. Austrian. That's right. She was Austrian. Mm-hmm. So is is German the Austrian language? Is that what they speak in Austria? Or do they speak yes. Austrian? Okay. No, it's German. It is German. Mm-hmm. So, th- so that's her native language. Yeah, I would absolutely want to work in my native language. I mean, I'm already not very eloquent in my own native language. I can only imagine how ineloquent I would be in other languages. Mm -hmm. It would just be so much easier to express myself in the languages that I spoke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would want to stay in Germany as well. Yeah. So at this point, too, Max Planck is um, still the head of the KWI of physics. So for Tauber was the uh, KWI for chemistry. Okay. Right, but Max Planck is for physics, um, but he's in his seventies, right. so he's he's an older man. Um, so in general, protecting um, people, um, you know, he I think he was another person kind of reading through the lines, um, and so he he wanted uh, a lot of his friends to resign and leave Germany. Uh, he thought that this would like spare. He, in his own words, he said it would spare his friends immeasurable grief. Absolutely. Which is. Um, yeah, and so Planck uh, also nominates Meitner and Hahn again for the Nobel Prize in 1932. Um, he and a lot of people thought that if Liza Meitner won the Nobel Prize, that would help protect her from the Nazi regime. Absolutely, I would think so. She did not, though. She doesn't win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> um, and she, in fact, re- that same year receives a letter from the Ministry of Education that she had lost her professorship. So they revoked it. Um, Max Planck and Otto Hahn um, both wrote letters of protest to the Ministry of Education, but all of them um, encouraged her not to directly protest the decision. They did it on her behalf. Why was that? Sexism? No, I don't think it was sexism from those two in particular. No, but they recognized there would be sexism from the Germans or the higher-ups or whatever. Well, yes, and then... Keep in mind, like, again, she is Jewish, right? So right. this would be a direct, like, protest to the government. Because, again, they're they're taking people away right. for protesting the government. And so if she... Right. If she, you know, if she protests too much, they're afraid that she will be, then become a target. I right. think I think is what happened. I mean, um, that was my understanding. Because a lot of people, a lot of her friends at this time, like were, like, also kind of encouraging her to leave. Like, you know, a lot of people were leaving. They were encouraging her to leave. Right. So I think they knew she... I, I do think they knew she was in danger, especially Max Planck. Um, right. Yeah. Um, heartbreaking. She leaves eventually, though, right? Like, she she finally leaves. Don't spoil it. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was asking, hopefully, like, because I'm getting nervous. I'm getting <laughs> nervous that she is staying here because, you know, I know what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, um, 
the, these letters do nothing, right? She, so she loses her professorship, but she does get to stay on in a private position. So they find private funding for her to keep her job. Um, but she can't lecture. She can't teach anymore. Right. Um, and so she can't have any public influence on the physics community anymore. In 1933, Max Planck actually gets to meet with Hitler. Um, Weird. Well, keep in mind, like, the KWI is, like, a government right. facility to a certain degree. Because in this time, the academia, industry, the government were all kind of one system. Right. And he actually tries to stand up for the dismissal policy of the Nazi regime. He especially wanted to stand up for Fritz Haber because a lot of people really respected him. And wrote he wrote about the meeting later in 1947. Which is good, because that means he lived. Because yes. I feel like directly telling Hitler, hey, maybe this policy is bad, was probably a quick way to not live anymore. Yeah. So it's good that he, he continued to live. So what did he write about it? So I'm not going to say it word for word, um, but to sum it up um, in a paraphrase is essentially like, um, Hitler told him that all Jews were communists. Right. And that um, you can't have any Jewish people because they all are the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, essentially, he, you know, I mean, he just, apparently Hitler, like, fully, like, screams at this guy for standing up to him. This doesn't sound problematic at all. Yeah. This is um, very logical, very logical that, you know the Jewish people are a monolith and all exactly the same. Mm-hmm. This is, this sounds accurate. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Max Planck also said that he, sh- you know, as a solution would be to allow Jewish folks to, uh, Jewish scientists to immigrate to other countries. And um, Hitler specifically says no, because he wanted them for scientific work. Um, and if they went to another country, it would be to the benefit of the foreign countries against Germany, right? Because already probably planning his invasions. Right. You know, this is before he invades anywhere, but he's already probably got that in his mind, right? Yeah, yeah, it really makes you wonder, like, how much he had had planned ahead. And I guess the other question is, is, like, why did, if he doesn't want them to immigrate, why was he letting these scientists leave in the first place? Because, like you said, like, Stauber's already gone, Einstein's left, Mm -hmm. like, and, like, there's probably a mass exodus exodus of other ones, I feel like maybe he let them leave without realizing, or before he maybe came to the conclusion that he was going to do the things that he did, because I mean, if I had been Hitler at the time, that's what I'd have done. I'd have kept them all and put them in their own little ghetto and been like, science for me, science for me! Yeah, I don't don't know. Um, But a year later, Hopper actually dies of heart failure while immigrating out of Germany. Um, and so for a year, nothing happened to memorialize Haber, who was arguably probably the most famous German chemist at the time. The next year, uh, on the anniversary of his passing, so he passed away one year, and then the next year, and nothing happened. And then the next year, Max Planck actually organized a memorial for Fritz Haber. Um, it was attended mostly by women, including Liza Meitner. Um, the other women were like wives of the professors of the KWI, because the professors were banned from attending. Oh. Okay. Um, but they kind of sent their wives to show their support. As I say, like, I can't show up, but, like, I do support this. So they were banned, I'm assuming, because he left and was Jewish. 
Yeah, and I mean, this entire that entire memorial was um, outward resistance to the Nazi regime. I see. And so Han um, Otto Han later says, you know, this was like the last chance for that kind of outward um, resistance. Right. Because you know, any and again, like people kind of know, like that's that's why they stopped Liza Meitner from protesting her dismissal. Right. You know, they know that these kinds of outward protests are going to get them in trouble. And make them targets, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's not, that's can't the do anything about the wives. Not that they can't do anything, but it's a uh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I, we, I don't know. <laughs> we'll figure it out. In 1934, we get into a little more science. You know, this was the political atmosphere, but... um, We're back to the science. We're back to the science. Back to the chemistry. So Enrico Fermi um, came out out with a paper in Nature where he describes the possibility of synthesizing elements with an atomic number greater than 92. So 92 is uranium. Right. Um, This is the first time people have been able to... um, overcome the Columbic barrier. So you know how like positive and negative charges attract and then positive and positive will repulse. Oh, right. Um, and so he proposed that using a, a neutron, so a neutrally charged particle would be able to penetrate into the nucleus, right? And then increasing the mass. Uh, yeah, and thereby like changing the element to something else or the well. So just putting else. into and just putting a neutron in there would not change the element, right? That's right because it's neutral. So, but um, can we edit this to make me look smart? Like I knew that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was very. You were very smart. <laughs> Yay. Um, but with this, you know, this was kind of a revolution to think like, oh, let's like try to put a particle into the nucleus because before this, it was considered like impossible to do so. And did they do it? Um, you'll find out. Okay. <laughs> with this revolution, Meitner um, urges Han to collaborate with, with her for the first time in 12 years. So they had kind of like branched off into their own projects. Right. But they're like, she's like, come on, this is great. This is our, this is what we used to collaborate yeah. on. Let's collaborate again. This is our thing. Let's get the band back together. Exactly. Um, and so in 1935, um, back to politics, the Nuremberg laws were passed, which made all people of Jewish descent non-citizens. But Liza Miner is still Austrian, so she has Austrian citizenship. Oh, fantastic. So it is separate. She hadn't become an official German citizen at, during any of this. She was she's just... Never in a, she's technically never a German citizen. Okay, um, good. Liza Meitner continued to be in Berlin for four more years. Four more years. So it's 1934. She stays till 1938. That is a... Man, she really didn't see the writing on the wall. Yeah, and so she continues to... Um, uh, this transuranic, um, transuranic meaning bigger than uranium, and um, she bombarded uranium with slow neutrons with uh, an assistant called, uh, his name was Fritz Strassmann. Mm-hmm. So that's what she's been, she works on. As she's doing this research, the SS is tightening their grip and like observation of her and other academics that had attended the Haber Memorial. Oh no. So like they're targeting the people that were at the memorial or they sent their wives to the memorial, right? Oh no. So it did, so the wives did not shield academics, I guess. That's, golly. And so many of her friends are still urging her to leave Germany. Um, both Han, the Hans, Otto Hahn and his wife, um, the Planks, you know, Max Planck and his fa- whole family, the Von Laus, all are like really close to her. And they're like, you should leave. <laughs> Get out. What are you doing? 
However, you know, Berlin's her home. The scientific community there was her family. She doesn't have children. She doesn't have other people to look out for exactly other than herself and the other folks at the KWI. And at this time, too, all of her research is getting credited to Han because she is Jewish. So he, she can't, she doesn't get any credit. And like Han even gets like invited to give talks for his research that is both of their research. That's her, yeah. So this is why they are tied together. Like, if you talk about Lysa Meitner, you have to talk about Otto Hahn. Yes. Because there's so much of her life and her times and her research that she's not even credited for at all. Mm -hmm. Like, and I mean, we we credit her now, but like at the time she was not credited. Yes. Yeah. Um, And so the two of them together would publish eight articles between 1935 and 1936. In 1936, they're nominated, both Hahn and Meitner are nominated for the Nobel Prize again. However, uh, again, they're they're trying to protect her. Like, right, they're, I mean, she's doing great scientific work, and they're thinking if she wins the Nobel Prize, this will protect her. Right. However, that same year, there's a journalist, a pacifist, and Nobel laureate called uh, Carl von Osteke. Ossietevsky, Ostekevi, Ostes, Ossietevsky. <laughs> I like it. We should just say his name different every single time. But he was actually sent off to uh, a concentration camp over his expose on the links between the German industry and state payoffs. So he like publishes this expose exposing um, all the corruption. Yeah, he gets targeted, and he even though he's a Nobel laureate, he is sent to a concentration camp. And that's when they realize nothing is going to shield you if they want you gone. Mm-hmm. And so, at this point, like the only thing really protecting her is her Austrian citizenship. Right, because like that, that's the only thing. That is, wow! Thank God she was always an Austrian citizen, citizen, and she didn't like ever expatriate from Austria and actually become a German citizen. Wow. Because this could have been a completely different story, and we might not have ever known anything about her in other circumstances. Yeah. We're about to get to some bad news on that front, though. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You set that up perfectly. So, um, but, um, so Max, to start off, Max Planck was kind of at this point the only one who was still convinced that the political turmoil would settle. But in 1937, he's 79 years old. And so he, he retires as his KWI, from the KWI. His replacement is a guy named Carl Bosch. Okay. Shout out to the nitrogen episode. Yes. <laughs> Shout out to the nitrogen episodes. And he's a German industrial chemist. He comes up, he's part of the Har- uh, Haber-Bosch process. Right. Um, he is very uh, valued in Germany for a lot of reasons. Was and he anti-Semitic? I'm gonna say no. Okay, that's good. I was worried for a second. Um, because when I first read this, I was like, oh no, what is Carl Bosch gonna do? Yeah. But he actually helps Liza Meitner. Fantastic, because so, the moment you mentioned him, I was like, oh no, what's happened? What did he do? Why can't I not like this guy anymore? So <laughs> I had the same thoughts. So, um, you know, because I think Carl Bosch and Fritz Haber, I don't know if they were friends exactly. I don't know how they considered each other. Um, like personally, but they did work together for a long time, and like I'm sure that, from my understanding, Karl Bosch did not enjoy. Like a lot of people in Germany did not like the treatment that Fritz Haber received. Fantastic, that's fantastic. At least, you know. Um, and in the end, I'll tell you Liza Meitner's opinion of all oh. the people that stay okay. in Germany, and I feel like that really sums up 
how I feel about it too. But anyway, back to her story. So he becomes the head of the K uh, chemistry KWI. And so on March 12th, 1938, Germany annexes Austria. Oh gosh, yeah. So Liza's, That's a problem. Liza's Austrian citizenship technically becomes German citizenship, but she's Jewish, so she has no citizenship. So she's just a woman without a country. Mm -hmm. um, and so she is six years old at this point. Yeah. Liza's she's getting too old for the shit. Liza's position is now really on the chopping block because again, she's been in a private position, but even that she probably can't keep anymore. Um, many of the scientists left at the Institute were absolutely hardcore Nazis. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Um, so a lot of them were, like, coming for her for a long time. Particularly the head of, like, the guest department, so you could be, like, a guest scientist somewhere. Mm -hmm. And this guy was in charge of that program, and so Liza Meitner was considered a guest. You know, she was he was kind of her boss, essentially, then. And he was a Nazi party member named Kurt Hess, um, and he was very vocal in his disapproval of Liza Meitner's continued employment at the KWI. And he probably decided to do something about it. Yeah, and there was meetings with the highest officials of the KWI um, and the Ministry of Education and Otto Hahn. So Otto Hahn attended this as well. Where Thank it God, I feel like that's probably a good thing. But it was decided that she would resign but continue to work unofficially. Okay. So... And Liza never forgives Otto Hahn for this. Really? For, 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 yeah. Um, because he did not do anything to stand up for her. How did she know? Because, I mean, he essentially told her to just not come to the Institute anymore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. It's such a sticky wicket. I both under I understand both of their sides. But, I mean, obviously, because I have the... Like hindsight's twenty twenty because I have the because I have the benefit of hindsight right. and like I live in the future comparatively. Like I like in my opinion she should have been gone four years ago at least. Mm -hmm. Um but like it made sense. Like I, she should not have gone to the institute. It's swarming with Nazis. Yes. And like who like I guarantee if something had happened, if she had just disappeared one day, nobody would have cared. Nobody would have look, looked into it. Exactly. And he was absolutely right, but I could totally see she's worked so hard her whole life and this is where she wants to be and what she's fought for mm -hmm. and she doesn't want to give that up because this is the closest thing to family she's ever had. So yeah. Exactly. It's, and it's the only thing that that really made a difference to me. She is 60 years old. Yeah. She has fought, you know, every, for every inch that she has ever gotten in academia. Right. Why would she want to leave? Exactly. No, I get it. Oh, it's such a horrible sto part of the story. Okay. Yeah. So the person who does stand up for her is actually Carl Bosch. He said, Fantastic. He said that it was his call as the person in charge of the KWI, and he would not have her resign. But he does know, and he, you know, it's, in, it's inevitable. It's obvious to everyone um, at this point that Liza needs to leave Germany. Right. Um, or she would lose more than her job. Right. right. So she, he knows, he's not, like, trying to put her in harm's way, but he is trying to, like, keep her within reach of him. Bosch's. Bosch. Because, <laughs> so... Um, at the same time, Bosch moves her into his hotel. So he's staying in a hotel. He moves her, like, next door in his hotel oh, for her safety. That is fantastic. Yeah. Okay, good. Good for Bosch. Yeah. So, um, and at that, and, and this, in fact, at this point, her ability to leave the country was, like, 
like they weren't sure how they were going to get her out now, right? Because right. she has no citizenship, she has no passport, she has nothing. And the war has probably is started in earnest by now. Like like before in 1934, the war hadn't really started started, and so people could still move within the borders. Mm-hmm. Now the war is on. Mm-hmm. We've been in war. This is there's no yeah mm-hmm. absolutely. And so, because and a lot of people who are fleeing Germany at this point, they're becoming they're imprisoned, right? They're sent to concentration camps. If you are caught trying to leave um, without permission, you will get sent to a concentration camp. Yeah. Outside of Germany, many of Liza Meitner's um, friends and fellow physicists um, wrote asking about her safety. They're offering her positions at different universities and institutions. Paul Scherer offered her a position at the University of Zurich. Uh, James Frank uh, invited her to the University of Chicago, and Niels Bohr offers her a position at, in Copenhagen. So she's getting all these offers from everywhere, like, please, we need Just to get her out. Come on. <laughs> and so in May of 1938, she actually accepts an offer um, at the Bohr Institute. So she, she wants to take up Niels Bohr's offer. Um, Where's that? Yes, Sweden. Sweden. <laughs> Sweden. Sweden. I like that. <laughs> so, but she accepts the position, and then. Um, when she files for a visa, she's denied because she is not a citizen. She, her Austrian, pa- there is no more Austria. Her Austrian passport is not valid. So who, who, who denied it? Was it Sweden who denied it? I would say it's probably Germany, Germany. as well. You know, Karl, Karl Bosch then takes it upon himself to write to the Minister of, Ed- of Education to allow the famous scientist Liza Meitner to leave for a neutral foreign country, Sweden, Denmark, or Switzerland. Yeah, and so at this point, Bohr and his wife actually travel to Berlin to try to come get Liza. Like, you know, they come and they're like, yes, we will take her back with us, you know, like to try to like be like, yes, please, can we take her? Yeah, and then Bosch receives the answer. So Bosch writes to ask for Liza to leave. And then his answer is, he gets the answer back, and it says, By the order of the Reich Minister Dr. Frick, may I most respectfully inform you that there are political objections to the the issuing of a passport for Professor Meitner. It is considered undesirable that a renowned Jew should leave Germany for abroad to act against the interest of Germany. The Kaiser Wilhelm Society will certainly find a way for Professor Meitner to stay in Germany after her retirement. Heinrich Himmler, in particular, have advocated for that position. That is... Heinrich Himmler is not a name you want to hear, like, on your side, especially when you're Jewish, because that sounds... I mean, we all know about him now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I really think... Heinrich Himmler specifically was like gunning for Eliza Meitner from what it sounds like. He was watching her. He was trying to get to her. What? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. How did she get out of this? This is like, this is stressful. Listening to this story is stressful. Also, I want to watch a movie about it. I would watch that crap out of a movie. This is so interesting. Why is there not a movie about this woman? Okay. Continue. So Bosch actually tries to go to talk to Himmler directly on Liza Meitner's behalf, um, but was quickly told by others to not do that. Don't. Wow. Yeah, no, I think. <laughs> no, don't, we don't talk to Himmler. Yeah, and so some people were like, oh, well, let's forge her a passport. Let's forge one. Um, and then Bohr had, re- Bohr, uh, Niels Bohr had actually re- relocated several political refugees um, so Bohr was the guy from Sweden. Um, and so he returned to Copenhagen um, to reach out to Main Siegbin, who was in Sweden, 
Uh, no, sorry, Copenhagen's in Denmark. But yeah, man, then main Seaborg Siegbahn was in Sweden. Okay. Because she ends up getting positioned in Sweden, so that's why I was confused. Um, but you know, he's asking Main Siegbahn to give um, Liza Meitner a position there in Sweden, mm-hmm. um, and to try to get her to Sweden because they can't get her to Denmark. Essentially, they uh, they agreed to hire her. Siegbahn agrees to hire her and for her to work in Stockholm. They sent a message to offer Meitner the position um, and sent this person, Dr. Rasmussen, to uh, escort her to Stockholm. Because, again, they're trying to get her escorted out, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, if she's on her own, they could easily, she could disappear or they could kill her. But if there's another famous scientist with her, like... So Dr. Rasmussen was not... I don't think he was a famous scientist. Niels Bohr absolutely was a famous person. But Rasmussen, well, but still, if he were to go missing or get hurt, like, that's going to alert a a higher-up community that's, you know, and now, because he, gosh, God knows whether or not he was Jewish, but, like, that's a whole different situation. Yeah, it makes Mm -hmm. sense. I would want to escort her as well. Yeah. However, this is not working out. They can't get the money in place. They can't get her visa in place. Oh, my God. Goodness. Yeah, they tried so many times to get her out. Um, and then there's this Dutch physicist who was working at the time um, in, from the Netherlands. Um, it was uh, Dirk Kostner and Peter Debai. They actually like took up a collection, so they like asked people for money to fund her to get her out. Um, I'm just wondering why at this point in time, like no one has just like shoved her in a trunk and like carried her. Like, <laughs> let's go! Like, just tie her up with some rope, like hog tie her and throw her in a trunk and just get out of the country. We're 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 almost there. So, almost, because the situation is becoming dire. Right. Right. Bosch writes to Han about the urgency for Meitner to leave as soon as possible, and when they finally reach Coster, he. Uh, he replied uh, that he would come and collect his new assistant. So they're talking in code, even. Right. To, to get her out. So the, he calls him, uh, calls her his new assistant, and um, in all the messages refers to her as a male. So, like, he's just coming to collect a new male assistant for his research, right? right. Like, that way people don't think that she, he's trying to come get Liza Meitner. Mm-hmm. So when they... Uh, he contacts the Ministry of Justice, which he had received a petition for Liza Meitner to immigrate, but the office was closed because it was a weekend. Fantastic. <laughs> so he had to wait till Monday. <laughs> but on Monday, Liza is granted a temporary entry into the Netherlands. Oh, thank goodness. So Koster board, board, boarded a train to Berlin, um, which was, of course, filled with Nazi soldiers. Uh, he arrives in Berlin late that night and meets Peter Dubai at the train station. And Liza Meitner had no idea that any of this was happening on her behalf. She just blissfully ignorant of the whole situation. Mm-hmm. She was still waiting on her visa to Switzerland or Sweden. Wow. So she thinks she's still going to Sweden. The next Tuesday morning, Liza went to the Institute where Dubai told her that there was an urgent change of plans and that she had, she was like, they ushered her into Han's office where he told her that she had the afternoon to pack and to leave for the Netherlands the next day. Mm-hmm. They just like we're you're leaving. We're gone. You don't have a choice in this. If you do not do this of your own volition, we will hogtie you and throw you in a trunk. I'm sure that was not said, but I'm it sure they felt that way. <laughs> I'm sure they felt that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, she was shocked, but she composed herself and agrees. Um, and then they agree that they would have a normal day. 
Fantastic. So yeah. they, they pretend everything's fine. She has a normal work day, so no one's suspicious. Um, she would stay at, at Otto Hahn's home that night and then leave in the next morning. So she spent the last night in Germany at the Institute till 8 p.m. proofreading a paper. <laughs> To be published by one of her younger colleagues. <laughs> so she is like the consummate physicist slash chemist. Like this woman is like married to her work. Like I know that she's not married to anyone, but she is absolutely married to her work. She taught herself eight years worth of high school and college. And this is, she is impressive. Yes. I 100% agree. So I can't imagine the panic she was feeling reading this paper, knowing that she was about to be like smuggled out. Well, you know what? She seems to me the type of person that if she's such a workaholic, that probably distracted her and grounded her being that's able fair. to read that paper. So like that's probably how she eased her anxiety mm -hmm. was just... I'm just, I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to, this is a normal day. I'm going to work and then, and then I will panic later on when I have the time. Yeah. Um, that's definitely true. Cause I, I know I've done that before where things are not nearly to this level, but like if something's going wrong in like your personal life, yeah. you go to work. <laughs> yeah. You just, you just block it out. You just zone out and pretend like it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm sure to a certain degree that she's been living with this constant threat this whole time, yeah. you know? Well, and she has to have been blocking it out. Like, mm -hmm. she's watching this going on around her. There's got to be some cognitive dissonance that's going on mm -hmm. to keep someone in that situation. Uh, like, I and know... not utterly panicking. Absolutely. Like, I know when things get really crazy in the world, I just, I stop watch I stop all social media mm -hmm. I stop you know watching the news and I just kind of live in my own little world and I like tell my husband like don't I don't care he'll be like hey you know what I don't care mm -hmm. stop we can't we're not doing that I can totally see and I'm sure it was 10 times easier back then to just not know what was going on around you and be maintain your blissfully unaware existence mm -hmm. Absolutely. So she packs her two small suitcases at her hotel, um, and by 10.30, she was collected and brought to Han's home, and she spent the night there. She did not sleep, of oh, course. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> but she did. She, she spent her last night in Germany there at Han's house. Um, the next morning, Han and another man, Rosod, packed her one more suitcase at her hotel. The hotel staff was not informed that she was checking out, right? Like, they didn't tell anybody, Absolutely. of course. Um, because, I mean, this is Nazi Germany. Everybody's a spy. Yeah. So if they had told, oh, yeah, I'm checking out, like, she wouldn't have made it out of the country. Exactly. And so Han um, gives her, actually, one of his mother's wedding rings for urgent like for an emergency. Like, not to put on her finger and be like, no, I'm sorry, but I'm married. But, like, literally to sell I think so, for yeah. the gold and diamonds to have extra money. I think so, like, if you, if you really need it. Or maybe, like, as a bribe, maybe. Oh, yeah. I don't know exactly what the, the plan was, but I know he gave her this ri the rings to... Wow. Essentially for money. Yeah. yeah. Um, to be used as she needed it. Um, Rosebod uh, drove her to the train station. Meitner actually panicked on her way to the to the station and told Rosebud to turn around. Stop it! What are you doing, woman? Oh my gosh, this is the point in the movie where you're yelling at the screen, what are you doing? Yeah, okay. but, but he manages to calm her down 
and and he calms himself down too, and and they go to the they finally get to the train station. Um, Coster did not meet her at the station, but like, like like he basically got on the train as if he was a separate person, right? Right. So she gets on, he gets on the train separately, but they're like watching each other. Like they know they they both know that each other is there. Um, hours later, when they approach the Dutch border, Meitner and Coster meet up on the train. So they they're like now they're together. Right. Because I'm um, assuming he has her papers. Yes. Or I think they gave her her papers before she boarded yeah, the train. Yeah, that would have made more sense. But yeah, so hours later, as they approach the Dutch border, you know, Hans waiting in Germany to receive a code word uh, by telegram of, like, the success or failure oh, of no. the journey. Um, and so after the tra- several hours train ride, um, the, the border guards are starting to look over everyone's paperwork. Um, she did not have an official, official passport or visa, but Coster, days before, had met with the Dutch guards. So he actually went to this train station, met with the Dutch guards, and told them that like, she had... This is the situation. I don't know how much they told he, he told her them about the situation, but basically enough, like, she had she had approval to enter the country, essentially. Fantastic, and yeah. I, yeah, I don't know how much they knew... Probably about. At, at the very least, they probably had to tell her, look, she's not going to have a visa. She doesn't have mm-hmm. a country. That's so crazy to me. You wouldn't think that not having a home country would be like, obviously, it's like, like, say, like, you don't have a birth certificate. It doesn't mean you, you weren't born. Just because yes. you don't have a visa doesn't mean you don't have a country. It's just crazy to me, the bureaucracy of it all and how, like, like, they could just revoke her citizenship. Yes. Is this even a thing anymore? Can they still do that? I don't know. I got to look that up. This is terrifying. Yeah. Um, I, I don't I don't know. <laughs> but I do know. Well, so I do know that uh, at least for how you um, claim, what is it called? Refugee status. Uh-huh. Like, if you if you arrive in a country and you say, I'm a refugee, you don't you can just show up. And say I'm a refugee. I'm asking to be a refugee. You know, like mm-hmm. for for asylum. that asylum. Yes, and so you have to be in the country for that. You yeah. don't ask for a visa beforehand. You just go and you say I I am asking for asylum. Right. That's how it works now. But uh, yeah, but the problem back then or even now probably is is actually getting into the country because if you get stopped by border guards, they're not even if you're a refugee. Like you can only be a refugee once you're in the country. You're not. Mm-hmm. You're not a refugee now. You're still in that country. So right, it's all tricky. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's especially tricky with, like, a train. But, like, with a plane, obviously, like, once you land, you're in that country. That's right. Yeah. You know, true. so, like, it is a little different in that sense of, like... Because with a train, they can stop you at the border, and the German police can still take you and keep you. Right? Oh, right. Yeah. So it's different because you're still on German land. Right. Yeah. Versus if she had literally walked across... Without hitting a border. Right. So, like, this point, you could totally just, like, hop off the train, walk into... I'm going to... In my head, there's woods on either side of this train track. Just walk into the woods, walk across the border. I doubt there's, like, guards, like, in the woods Oh, I'm sure there are guards in the woods. Oh, you think? I think so. German guards, absolutely. Well, listen, this is... This is my... My movie in my head. This... That's what I would do. And then probably get shot, but it would work out in my fantasies. But either way, so they, she, so she gets there. Um, they're at the border. The border guards are checking the paperwork, um, and you know, Costa had talked to the guards. So Liza's entry, uh, they finally Liza gets through. She ends up getting through. So the next day, sigh of relief. Yes. <laughs> Woo! We're finally 
finally done. Good and grief. the next day, Coster sends a telegraph to Han that the baby had arrived. Thank God. I wonder what the code would have been for if it, if like she, she hadn't gotten there. I don't know. I don't know what the other code word was, but um, interesting to know. Of course, she spends the next few weeks recovering from stressful events. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so after a week, she finally writes to all her friends that helped her escape to thank them. Because, mm-hmm. um, again, she didn't really know that that was happening until it was happening. Right. Um, and then she began exploring um, Groningen, which is the, the uh, town that she's in. Um, it's a sleepy university town. And, like... Berlin at that point had been, like, completely militarized. Mm-hmm. There were swastikas everywhere, soldiers on the streets. This town didn't have that. Well, you know, and, like, and it was very calm, peaceful. People were riding bicycles and, like, just relaxing. Well, and I can also imagine being in the center of Germany, like, the, the censorship. Mm-hmm. So, like, she's in Germany, and she's only being told what the Germans are telling her. And so she probably did not even realize how dire her situation was. But she has all these people from the surrounding countries who are getting real-life information and who right. actually know what's going on. So she's been there. Now she's in this country for a week, and she's like, oh, crap. This was a lot scarier than I realized. Mm-hmm. She's probably just now like coming to terms with how precarious the mm-hmm. situation she has been in really was. Exactly. And so now she's like, oh wait, thank you guys. Exactly. It's like crazy. You know, like we were saying, like she was just working, right? And right. just like zoning out, working and like I mean that's kind of what she did anyway, but like to a certain degree and then just kind of putting on the blinders and, like, just not thinking about it, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And now she's finally safe, and she's, like, probably feeling all those emotions yeah. from yeah. having escaped, you know? Yeah, it's like looking at your, like, taking a picture of yourself at the beach, and at the time, you're having all fu- all kinds of fun, and then you d- get the film developed, and you're like, oh, shit, there was a shark in the background, and I walked onto the beach at the right exact time, time. had I not, I would have been eaten. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the situation. Exactly. And so Coster, the guy who smuggles her out, um, gets like calls from other people that were also trying to get her out. And, and he was now f- as famous for the abduction of Liza Meitner as he was for the discovery of Hafnium. That's hilarious. Um, she was, man. But yeah, so she spends the month of July with her friends in the Netherlands, but she still wants this job in Sweden. So she's still trying to get a job in Sweden. That's hilarious. And the consummate workaholic. Yeah. Married um, to the job. So she finally gets her position in Stockholm. Um, and so she goes and she visits Bor in Denmark. Um, and um, she's keeping up the keeping up with the work from the Jolie Curies uh, from France. And by late August, everything is finally in place for her to go to Sweden. When she gets there, she's greeted by her friend um, and a scientist, uh, a scientist that's also from Berlin. She also left Eva von uh, Bar Burgius. Um, Eva encouraged her to officially retire from the KWIs. She's she still hasn't even officially retired. Yeah. They don't know she's gone. Germany doesn't know like she's this gone. This is a week later, and they still haven't. This is months later. Months later. Yeah. How do they not know? Especially if they were gunning for her so hard. Well, this it's good. It's good that they didn't know, right? Yeah. And they still don't know. Hilarious. So well, they might know by this point, but like Carl Bosch and Otto Hahn um, was working. 
um, to secure her pension as well, mm-hmm. and like try to and try to keep like the news of her escape secret. So they were like trying to keep it on on the low. <laughs> All I imagine is like they have like like a little mop with <laughs> like like they put a dress on a mop with a balloon for her head, and like they just like carrying her around like a like a weekend at Bernie's type situation. Like oh yes, Autobahn, let's go do our science experiments all around the little office <laughs> and like no one notices because you know she's a woman and a Jew so like why would they even look in her direction mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's how this is playing out in my head but yeah even Max Planck had not been notified like they didn't even tell Max oh, no. Planck that she got out did she, but did she not write a letter to him and be like hey I'm going now no, they, she did not write to anybody in Germany. Every oh every communication into Germany about Liza Meitner at this period is in code. Right. Well, yeah, because because of the censorship. Right. Did, I guess I guess I didn't realize they censored mail. Like, yeah. That they went through and read and censored mail. Absolutely. Oh Especially for like big big name people. Absolutely were they doing that. Wow, good grief. So like I'm sure Max Planck is just sitting there freaking out thinking she's just been like assassinated or sent off to a concentration camp because I doubt they let people know when they did those things in Germany and he's probably like mourning her death or something. That poor man. On August 29th, Otto Hahn um, reported Liza Meitner's retirement. Fantastic. (laughs) To the staff of the KWI. Again, they're trying to get her pension so that she can like have like money. Right. Um, and so on October 1st, Han wrote to Liza about the updates on her legal situation and pension. So like now I think Germany has now figured out that she is not in Germany. Right. At least by this point. So I know I know by, by August 29th they finally know. But I don't well, know if they knew when when they knew beforehand. <laughs> if well, they did. Especially if they announce her retirement and they're like, okay, so where do we send the check? To the hotel? Um, no, in Sweden. I think that's probably a dead giveaway, you know where they forwarded the money. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, actually, so I should have read this again to remind myself. So Otto Hahn, so that they still didn't know because when, when on October 1st, when Otto Hahn wrote to Liza about the updates on her legal situation, this is what he says. The Kaiser Wilhelm Society will try everything possible for you. However, Bosch does not know that whether the application will go through for your, you know, for your pension. Mm-hmm. As for you, perhaps a certain difficulty could arise insofar as your case... Um, as in your case, with uh, a personal consultation with Dem Osterin, with Heinrich Himmler, mm-hmm. has been considered. Yeah, and if they were to find out that you are not in Germany, they would perhaps be cross. So yeah. they still don't know. <laughs> perhaps be cross. So, uh, Maybe. yeah. So Possibly. E- even by October, like the 1st of October, they still did not know that she was not in Germany. Thank goodness. Gosh. Well, I mean... What were they going to do about it? It's not like they could, like, storm into Sweden and take her back. They were... That would be a whole yeah, other situation. but it probably would have gotten Otto Hahn and Karl Bosch in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they could totally have retaliated. So during the rest of 1938, uh, Hahn and Meitner are riding back and forth. Uh, Meitner ends up being really unhappy in Sweden. So the institute that she gets hired on was, like, newly built, and so it didn't have any equipment. She was lonely because most of the Swedish chemists didn't want to speak in German. Right. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) That makes sense. And she didn't really know a lot of Swedish, so she couldn't really talk to anybody. 
So how did they know, how did the Germans not cue in that Liza Meitner wasn't there if she's actively sending letters from Sweden to Otto Hahn? I guess she might have just used a code name or something. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Because, I mean, I think that's like a, a big red flag, you know, like to mm-hmm. Otto Hahn from Liza Meitner in Sweden. Yeah. Poor woman. She was miserable, though. Mm-hmm. So she, of course, tried to teach herself uh, Swedish, um, and her letters describe her, she describes herself as a wound-up puppet that can give a smile but has no life. Um, in November, Otto Hahn um, did get a chance to travel to Copenhagen to give a lecture at the Bohr Institute, um, and they actually had like a tearful reunion together. Oh, thank goodness. Um, Hahn uh, discussed with Liza, uh, Niels Bohr, and Otto Robert Frisch some of the strange results he was getting. So he's oh. continuing with the research that they did before, the too. The transuranium? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so um, Hahn um, basically says that he, when he's bombarding the uranium with slow neutrons, he thought he was getting a mixture of the elements uh, radium because he was um, able to use the carrier barium to remove the radioactive substance from the mixture. So, like, how we talked about last time, you know, like, they're using a carrier substance, and if it acts mm-hmm. like the same element, like, if it acts chemically similar, then we know where where it roughly sits on the periodic table. Right. Right? And so it's acting like barium, and the radioactive element that acts like barium is radium. Right. Okay. So he thinks he's getting radium. Um... Bohr is, like, really skeptical about this because to turn uranium into radium, there would have to be, like, two subset, um, two alpha decays, which, like, doesn't really make sense in the physics world. Right, okay. Um, Physically. Bohr's a physicist, so he's thinking of it in physics terms. Right. And so... And just... Just to make sure that I'm following this, two alpha decays are just two protons. Helium nuclei. Helium nuclei. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're going to have to clarify. So, it's two protons, two neutrons. Okay, two protons, two neutrons. And so, essentially, there'd be um, four protons, four neutrons would have to leave the nucleus for uranium to turn into radium. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah. For an for I mean, doesn't sound like a lot, but that's that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Two alpha decays is, is a lot. So okay, sorry, keep going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so Han Frisch and Meitner were all all present that day and discussed the interpretation of these findings because Otto Hahn wasn't sure what this meant. So right. like he he he's saying you know this is a really weird result. I don't know what's going on. Exactly. Like, these are the results I'm getting. This meeting took place at the same time as Kristallnacht, to put it into historical perspective. So, like, while they're all in Denmark, Kristallnacht is happening in Germany. Oh, no. It took me a second to register what Kristallnacht was. And I, oh, wow. So, um, as Otto Hahn returned to Germany, um, his wife is really ill. um, And Liza tried to make um, a secret... And Liza starts making secret plans to immigrate her sister and her husband. Um, uh, her sister is, they call her Gusti, and they call, the brother-in-law is uh, Jutz Frischt, so they're Otto Robert's parents. Okay. So the nephew, so. Yes, yes, yes. So um, she found out by letter that um, Jutz had been arrested and was being kept at Dachau concentration camp. Um, what was he arrested for? Being Jewish. Oh. <laughs> I thought this was- I love your son. I'm sorry. My brain was, I was thinking, oh, he did something silly or stole something. And I 
Four Two. Oh my goodness. Okay, so he's just arrested and sent to Dachau, which mm-hmm. is terrifying. Yeah. So she, um, does he make it out of Dachau? He does. Thank he God. Does. Okay. So he lies. In, I don't. I don't know exactly how this happens, but they end up getting the. They end up getting Robert uh, Otto Robert's uh, parents out of Germany as well. Fantastic. I think he. They also end up in Sweden. Um, so. Uh, um, by November 15th of that year, Jewish children were not allowed to st- attend school, and all people with at least one Jewish grandparent, whether or not they practiced the religion, had to wear yellow stars of David and have Sarah or Israel in their name for identification. That is so, insane. Like, one Jewish grandparent? And then all of Liza Meitner's documents were changed to be Liza Sarah Meitner by her lawyer. Even though she's in Sweden? Yeah. Why? Oh, I get... Hi, she's not I a think, German citizen. I think she's not even Austrian anymore. I think they're pretending that she's still in Germany still. Oh. Because they're just still trying to sense. get her pension. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So she's got a lawyer trying to get her pension for her, too. And, like, Otto, Otto Hahn and, and Karl Bosch are still trying to get her pension. So she's still... So in Germany, there's still a mop and a dress that they're carrying around. I guess. To, like, like, this is Lysa. Okay. Um... But yeah, so for Christmas of 1938, Liza Meitner and her nephew, um, Otto Robert Frisch, um, spend time together with Liza's friend, uh, Eva von uh, Bar Burgess. Um, they end up going to a small coastal village in Sweden. So like Otto Robert, you know, th- at this point, his parents, are st- his father is still in the concentration camp. He hasn't gotten out yet, I don't think. Uh-huh. And so they're kind of like spending the time together with the family that they have. Right. Um, yeah. Well, and this is er- still pretty early in the war when people could get out of the concentration camps because mm-hmm. in a very short time, there was no, no escape. One leaves. Yeah. yeah. You go into a concentration camp, you're not coming out. Yeah. Um, and so Otto Robert and Liza would spend time discussing a letter she had received from Otto Hahn. So they're the workaholics they are, of course, right. are going to talk about physics. Um, Otto Hahn is describing um, his frustration with the fact that he can't get the radium to separate out of the barium. Okay. So um, typically you should still be able to, you know, radium and barium, you're using barium as a carrier, but right. you should be able to still separate out the radium eventually because it is a different element. Right. And he can't get it to work. He says that he says in a letter that he compared it to other elements, uranium, thorium, actinum, lead, bismuth, polonium, and it isn't any of those elements. Like, he cannot uh, figure this out exactly. But it also doesn't typically behave like radium either, but it behaves exactly like barium. He and Strassman, so Fritz Strassman, the guy who Liza Meitner worked with before too, mm-hmm. um, agreed that... Of course, uranium did not just burst into barium, which has a mass 40% smaller than uranium. Right. You can't add something and get less. We'll get there. Um, they were asking her to help them interpret the results, right? Okay. So they're getting, which, and it seems to be impossible, right? They're like, there's no way uranium burst into barium. Right. Hahn and Strassman submitted a draft for the publication while consulting with Liza about how it was possible. So they're writing up their results. They're sending it in. While Liza and Otto Robert were cross-country skiing, they are, like, arguing about the results. So they're, like, in the Swedish countryside, like, skiing and, like, arguing about this. Frisch thought that Han had made a mistake. So Fritz is, like, 
this is wrong. He just Frisch is like data is wrong. Yeah, it's just like Han is wrong. There's no way this is right. But Meitner is firm that Han is a very good chemist. So she's like, if he says it's barium, it's barium. Um, Frisch thought it was impossible for a nucleus to burst in half. So like the current understanding of the nucleus is like thinking of the nucleus of an atom is like described as like a drop of water. Mm-hmm. So that's um, actually from Niels Bohr. He describes a nucleus as a drop of water. Frisch and Meitner discussed that the bursting process where the drop of water, the nucleus, like if you were had a drop of water and you elongated it and then constricted it and you would split it into two. Uh-huh. Right? And so just like any, any liquid, there's an amount of energy required to overcome the surface tension, or in this case for the nucleus, it'd be the strong nuclear force. Right. So, you know... There's an amount of energy needed to overcome that. Okay. And so if there was enough energy, you would get two drops and two separate nuclei. There, in the Swedish countryside, Meitner stops and pulls out a paper and starts doing the calculations. To For figure- splitting an atom? Yes. <laughs> so splitting the atom was calculated while doing cross-country sw- uh, skiing in Sweden. Yes. Fantastic. At least the initial calculations, of course. The initial calculations, of course. Yes. Um, Meitner calculated that the amount of positive charge in the uranium ion was enough to overcome the strong nuclear force or the surface tensor- tension, if we're sticking to like the water drop analogy, uh-huh. to, to, to split it into two. So is that what he was doing? He was splitting the atoms and mm-hmm. not even knowing it? Yeah, because at the time it was thought it was, they thought it was impossible, right? So he he's like, I don't think that's possible. I must like he you know. So oh my gosh! So it was like a complete and total accident that we split the atom the first time. That's crazy. So um, okay. So what? Okay, so now this is where you're gonna have to ed- educate me mm-hmm. on chemistry stuff. So obviously, splitting atoms creates energy. Yes. So. How did he like not notice the expenditure of that energy when he when it was being split? Is it just so minute that it wasn't noticeable or Yeah, so um essentially like if you're only doing it on a small scale, you're not gonna Right notice exactly, right? Like this is just like a small lab experiment. Right. Okay. Um, and so after after you separate the nuclei, right, there's an amount of energy that would uh of about two hundred milli million electron volts would be needed to push the two nuclei apart. Otherwise, they would just form back together. Okay. Right? Um, and so That water droplet wouldn't have... You wouldn't have enough energy to break the surface, t- surface tension and would just snap back together. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Mm-hmm. Okay. Essentially, yeah. Um, and so, um, after more calculations, Meitner realized that the two new nuclei formed would be lighter than the original mass of the uranium by one-fifth of a proton. One, how do you measure one-fifth of a proton? I'm well, sure it has to do with moles, but... Well, she's, she didn't. She just, like, from, right. from herself, she, she's doing the calculations on paper. This is theory, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then with that one-fifth of a proton, she plugs it into Einstein's equation, E equals mc squared. Uh-huh. And when you calculate that, the difference in mass results in the creation of exactly 200 milli, million electron volts. That... So she just figured this out. She just knew it. She just knew this. She knew this so well that as she's skiing, she does the math and and has figured this out just 
just off the top of her head. Yeah, because everyone else is just sitting here, like, doubting Han's work, essentially, saying, oh, well, this is impossible, this isn't happening. And she's like, well, what if it did happen? And then she did the math. And she did the math. She brought the receipts. This yep. is, oh my gosh. I need to, I need to know more about this woman. She, she has stolen my heart with <laughs> all of her, her, <laughs> her workaholicism. Oh, this is insane. So, okay, so he's actually getting barium. He's splitting the atom. Mm-hmm. He's actually ending up with the other element of barium. What, what, so he knows that he's getting barium, and so obviously this atom is splitting. There's another atom that is created. What's happening to that little particle or element or molecule or whatever it is, and mm-hmm. what was that atom? Uh, let me double check. <laughs> this question and you didn't even know I feel good that makes me feel smart for some reason I don't know because I would assume like he's he's inundating this uranium and he's getting the barium but you know mm-hmm. it splits off he's splitting an atom so there's another element where where did it go how did he not detect that second element well so if he's looking for radium right he might not even be trying to get the right. other element he's you know? not even it's not even dawning on him that there's an, another element being made. Mm-hmm. He's not so, realizing he's splitting the atom. The other one is uh, Krypton, which Krypton's a gas, so he also probably didn't notice. So it's just a, it's just it's going into the ether. Yeah. Okay. Is Krypton poisonous? Is he no. breathing in poison? Okay, that's good. I'm just wondering. No, Krypton's that. a noble gas, so. Okay. Or I'm pretty sure. No, I'm questioning myself, but I'm pretty sure it's a noble gas. <laughs> So you're the professional here. I'm you looking, have to be right I have to about look, everything at all times. At the periodic table, but I'm like 90%, I'm like 99% sure. I'm doubting myself. That's what the periodic table is for, though. Right. Listen, I thought you were like a PhD candidate. You're supposed to have I this am. stuff memorized. Okay, but like nobody works with Krypton. No, I know. I know. I'm teasing. <laughs> I, I know math- mathematicians, you know, who are the enemies of chemists and physicists. You know, everyone knows about that war that's going on. And uh, but yeah, they will yeah. occasionally get things wrong, and people are like, "Oh my gosh, you're a mathematician! You're supposed to know this." And they're like, "Dude, I'm human. It yeah. happens." Um, but yes, it is. It is a it noble is. gas. It is a noble gas. So he's so he's taking his uranium. Mm-hmm. He's ending up with barium, and and then the krypton is just escaping, and he's not even noticing because he has no idea that he is splitting an atom. Exactly, and so he's convinced it's got to be radium, right? right? Because that's much closer in weight. Okay. To the uranium. So, so, and here's the, the question, and this is just because my novice understanding of radiochemistry is when you inundate an atom with, you know, a dip, like barium or graphite or whatever other atom that you're going to, like, you can't necessarily control what it decays into, like, what it's radioactive decay. Is that right? Well, yes. So, essentially, we know, now we know like what it would do so like we we would know what it would turn into but like it's not we don't have any control over it exactly so explain that because like i know like when it's like at a nuclear power plant and Mm -hmm. you have nuclear waste it's not just one element you're not all it's not you're not creating all barium in there Mm -hmm. you've got helium and you've got like a a myriad of different elements how does um, how is he only coming out with barium in the in these experiments and not, you know, different combinations of, of elements? Um, so 
essentially in a in a nuclear reactor. So he's doing slow neutron bombardment. Okay. Which is different. So in a nuclear reactor, you typically have faster okay. neutron bombardment, and then you also get the chain reaction, right? So he's not okay. necessarily getting a chain reaction. So he's just splitting one uranium. Re- um, He's just getting the very next reaction that you usually get. Right. But okay. If, but if you, you know, like there's a critical mass, right? You've probably heard of that, like a mm-hmm. cr- critical mass for a bomb. Okay. Right? That I would explain what that, what that means. So, so essentially, if you have enough uranium together. Right. You can make it chain react to where the neutrons hit another uranium right. and keep going. Right. Exactly. Right? Yes. So that if you don't have that, if you don't have enough uranium to do that, you're only going to get barium because oh, you're only getting okay. the next thing. So the unpredictability comes with the chain reaction. Yes. Oh. Okay. I didn't know that. So like in in a your reactor, right? We ha- you have a continuous reaction right. going versus what he's doing is just one, one thing. Si- he's just splitting one single atom one single time whereas in the reactor, you're splitting that very first atom that the the protons and, or the neutrons wait mm-hmm. what neutrons. the neutrons are splitting off and hitting other atoms mm-hmm. and then it just keeps going and going and going ad infinity or ad infinity Oh, that's words. I know how to say that, but right now it's like, nope, you don't get to say that word. So forever, or well, until it no longer has the energy to do that. Mm -hmm. And okay, so I did not know that. I thought that if you just bombarded any, like if I took uranium and I hit it, bombarded it with other neutrons, that I could at any point in time get any kind of combination there uh, of atoms that add up, you know, atomically to uranium. So I'm wrong about that, and I've learned something. Yeah, um, there is like a decay series. So once right. you make an isotope, you get a decay series, and so you can also get a mixture that way. Like if you wait long enough, essentially. Right. <laughs> um, depending on what the half lives of things are, because that's the other thing. Like you're. Um, like, once you get into transuranics, then you're getting all kinds of mixtures, all kinds of things. But, right. like, specifically uranium it, it will split into barium and krypton. Fantastic. Good to know. Ooh, I love it. I feel so smart today. <laughs> I've learned stuff. But, yeah. So, you know, as groundbreaking as this reaction as this is, it's also, like, heartbreaking for Liza and Otto because it, it basically takes all of their results from the last few years um, and kind of throws them out the window. And invalidates them. Yeah. So if I go back and look at, at the, the book from 1937 and look at all of Liza Meitner's and Otto Hahn's papers that were written about in the British Chemistry Journal, like, that's all wrong. Yeah. A few years later. Um, and so um, with the new year, it's 1939, Liza and Otto Robert begin to draft their article as well. So, like... Um, Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann have already sent their article in before Christmas. The wrong article. Well, it's they not are wrong about it. It's not wrong um, because uh, Otto Hahn does like say it seems like it's barium. Right. But, like that seems impossible. So he he's not wrong, but he doesn't have an explanation for why. Oh, I see. So it's not wrong. It's just incomplete. Yes. Okay. So he he does have this data. It is right. But Liza Meitner and Otto Robert Frisch are the ones who tell you tell him why. Okay. So okay. they they put together their paper, um, 
Otto Robert um, actually works for Niels Bohr at this point. And so Bohr, um, when he told Bohr about the splitting of the nucleus, Bohr was like so excited. Um, he was um, going to uh, Princeton on a trip to visit Einstein. Uh-huh. And he had a blackboard put into his cabin on the ship so that he could he could do stuff. So he could do the calculations. So he could like think about this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and then Bohr also insisted that Liza and Otto Robert publish her, her idea as soon as possible because he was worried that she would not get proper credit if she delayed. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So what I'm getting from this is that chemists are workaholics and physicists, which kind of makes sense because I've had you've had got gotten very excited conversations about things and I'm like yes I don't know half of the words that you just said but it sounds very exciting <laughs> but yeah so it takes three and a half weeks for Meitner uh, and Frisch to draft the article and send it in um, where are they sending it in to nature Okay. Um, the Journal of Nature. I am going to go look up the 1939 Journal of Nature in the stacks here in a bit because I'm actually very excited to look at that. Uh, it'd be much easier if I sent you a PDF of it if you would like. But if you would like the actual book, you can go look. I, would, but... I want both. You should send me the PDF, but okay. I want to go actually because I feel like I feel like actually having a, an old school book in the stacks in my hands mm-hmm. to look at it just all the other people that's a connection yeah absolutely um and so um by this point the world is like a buzz with Strassman and Hans article that they had published in December um and the Meitner Frisch the Meitner Frisch paper was entitled disintegration of uranium by neutrons a new type of nuclear reaction um, in it, they first described the mechanism of how this new reaction occurred, and they also finally, like, name the process, and they name it fission for the first time in literature. So the first time fission in this context is used is in this paper. So Liza Meitner coined the term nuclear fission. Well, at least fission. Kind of. So th- how they got the name, Frisch is actually the one who picked the name fission. Okay. And so he got it because when he told his biochemist friend about nu- this nuclear reaction... Um, the colleague, his name was Dr. Arnold, um, scoffed and replies, every biology, a biologist knows that it's called fission because like fission is also what it's called when cells divide. Right. And so they're actually getting it from this bio, um, biology term. It's so crazy. I just love learning about this stuff because it really makes you realize the sim- the symmetry of, of nature, you mm-hmm. know, this is awesome. Okay. So... Also, another thing that totally, I totally realize is the way that I think about the word nuclear is completely different from the way that these people thought about the word nuclear. They are literally thinking about a nucleus of an atom, Mm -hmm. whereas for me, it's literally tied to nuclear reaction, or not reactions, nuclear um, power plants and atom bombs, and it's like... The waste, really, for me, when I think about nuclear, I think about, like, the the end product mm-hmm. of splitting an atom and not the actual nucleus of the atom, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but the next year, so Frisch and his colleague, uh, Rudolf uh, Perls, produced what's called the Frisch-Perls uh, Memorandum, which is the first document outlining how much visionable material, the critical mass that we talked about before, was needed to create a bomb. Why would they do that? Why did they do that? 
Why? What was the point? But this this paper led directly into um, the Mod Committee, which is the UK kind of the UK version of the Manhattan Project. Yeah, and the Tube Alloy Project and the Manhattan Project. Literally, though, why did they do that? Was it just the, was this just a theoretical thing that they were like, I wonder how much it would take to create a bomb, or was there a political agenda? Why? I mean, if you think, I mean, I don't know exactly why Frisch did this exactly, but like it was kind of inevitable that someone would figure this out because, you know, here's this new process, here's this new thing. There's this horrible, horrible thing going on in Germany, and especially for Fritz, like his own parents were almost killed in this. Right. Um, political machine of killing Jewish, Jewish people. Right. You know, and so, like, I can understand to a certain degree being like, we need a weapon to fight them because the German military was considered one of the best in the world. Right. Gosh, I wonder how different the war would have been had, like, Lysa Meitner left way earlier mm-hmm. and, like, maybe lost contact with Otto Hahn or something. Or if, or if they just... Or maybe if she had been assassinated because, you know, she was the one who figured it out while skiing. Or if maybe she was 10 years younger or just mm-hmm. any of these things. I wonder, it totally would have changed the outcome of World mm-hmm. War II. Yeah. Or if they Germans had not ostracized the Jews and they had figured this out while they were in Germany. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Because a, a lot of, like, the West, as far as, like, the UK and the US, they both thought that the Germans were trying to figure this out, too. So they thought that Germany was, like, trying to develop a fission weapon as well. After Meitner had put out her arc or her Yeah, papers. so after fission is discovered, like, you know, because Otto Hahn and, and Fritz Strassmann is there. They, well, they did this, right? And at this point, I wonder how many people actually know that she's out of Germany by now. Right. So, because they're really trying to... So, by everyone else's thoughts and feelings... And from what they know, Liza Meitner is still in Germany... publishing these papers. Well, I'm sure once she starts publishing again, they probably have figured out that she's not in Germany. Probably. I would think. But Um, also, I could see, you know, news might not have traveled as fast, and if you weren't politically swayed or in the know, I could understand where people might not realize that she was not in Germany at the time. mm Mm-hmm. So Frisch, you know, actually takes part in the Manhattan Project. He's he he's in the UK at this point, so he's part of the British delegation to Los Alamos. Mm-hmm. Um, Liza Meitner was also offered a position, but she declined because she said she would have nothing to do with the bomb. Ah, yeah, that. Um, she was really upset by the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, remarking that she wished the bombs had never been, never had to be invented. I wonder what her reaction, I mean, because it was her nephew mm-hmm. who proposed, who even mentioned the bomb in the first place. I wonder what their conversations were like. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that changed their relationship mm-hmm. or if things were just normal and neutral or if she knew what he was publishing. Oh, that man, to be on the fly, a fly on the wall in that room. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they stayed really close. Like, they, they... That's good. They did stay close. I don't think she felt particularly mad at Frisch. Right. Otto Robert Frisch over that. I think... Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure she did not like his... His decisions in making a bomb. Right. You know? But, I mean... I wonder... I wonder if she could do it all over again. If she... Because... Well, we'll get into this. 
because I'm literally about to say what she thought of it after the fact. Oh, fantastic. Let's go. So after the war, Meitner acknowledged her own moral failings in staying in Germany from 1933 to 1938. She wrote, it would not be, it was not only stupid, but very wrong that I did not leave at once. She only regretted she her inaction during this period. She was also bitterly critical of Hahn, Max von Lau, Werner Heisenberg, and other German scientists. In a June 1945 letter addressed to Hahn, um, he never actually receives this letter, but he she does send it. Um, why doesn't he receive it? What I don't know. It, I couldn't find why he didn't get it. Okay. Um, but he this is this is her words. Um, you all worked for the for Nazi Germany, and you did not even try passive resistance. Granted, to absolve your conscience, you helped some oppressed people here and there, but millions of innocent human beings were murdered, and there was no protest. Here in neutral Sweden, long before the end of the war, there was discussion of what should be done with German scholars once the war is over. What then must the uh, English and German or English and Americans be thinking? I and many others are of the opinion that one path for you would be to deliver an open statement that you were aware that through your passivity you you share responsibility for what happened and that you have the need to work for what can be done to make amends. But many think it is too late for that. These people say that first you betrayed your friends, then your men and your children in that you let them uh, stake their lives on a criminal war. And finally, you betrayed Germany itself because when the war was already quite hopeless, you never once spoke out against the meaningless destruction of Germany. That sounds pitiless, but nevertheless, I I believe that the reason I write this to you is in true friendship. In the last few days, one had heard of the unbelievably gruesome things in the concentration camps. It overwhelms everything one previously feared. When I heard on English radio a very detailed report by the English and Americans about Belsen and Buchenwald, I began to cry out loud and lay awake all night. God, yeah, Buchenwald was... I'm sorry. And if you had seen those people who were brought here from the camps, one should take a man like Heisenberg and millions like him and force them to look at these camps and the martyred people. That is savage. She was savage in there. Golly, yeah. She should have left. There, I can understand. But she left at the beginning of the war almost. Because the war started in 1936, right? 1939. Oh, okay. So she left right before the war started. Mm-hmm. So that's good. But there is... Uh, and I'm sure she recognized this, that there is still work that she did that contributed to... I'm sure she recognized this, but, you know, some of her work was contributed to the war efforts, even though she left right before the war started. Wow. Yeah, that is harsh criticism, mm-hmm. especially of, like, Otto Hahn and, I mean, all the people who you assume were not of German descent, who had... who were Aryan, they... Whew. So, with the, at the end of World War II, Liza Meitner actually found herself a celebrity in, the, in the United States. Um, she got to have a radio interview with Eleanor Roosevelt. I need to listen to that. Um, you should find a link for it. <laughs> uh, she went on a lecture tour all over the United States and England. Um, she met all uh, what I call the big hitters at the time. So, uh, Albert Einstein, Enrico Fermi. 
and a bunch of others, which gets us to our final topic for Liza Meitner's story, the Nobel Prize for Nuclear Fission. <gasps> Did she ever win it? Nope. What? <laughs> In 1944, Otto Hahn alone won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of nuclear fission. But, like, he didn't even know he was doing it. Correct. She was the one that figured out that he was fissioning it. He basically just would have sat there and been like, I don't know. It's turning into barium. I guess we just have an unending barium-making machine. (laughs) Like, what is going on? So, now, Fritz Strassmann, who did all the experiments with Hahn... Um, didn't win because he was considered an assistant to Han. And you usually the Nobel Prize goes to only the most senior people who work on a project. That sounds like such a cop-out. <laughs> I don't agree with that at all, but that's that's the reason that the Nobel Committee gave for why they gave it to Han alone. Do they still do that? Yes, kind of. That's horrible. But yeah, and so um, Meitner did not share the prize in chemistry, um, because the committee for chemistry did not really know how to measure her contributions because it's like interdisciplinary work. Right. And so they weren't sure how to like account for that in the project. And so in my opinion, like Fritz, Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann should have won the, the chemistry prize. Right. And then Liza Meitner and um, Otto Robert Frisch should have won the prize in physics. Absolutely. Because they did the experiments and that was important and documenting what... And when I say they, I mean Otto Hahn and his assistant. (laughs) They did the experiments. Mm -hmm. They collected the data. They made the observations. But without Frisch and Meitner, it was nothing. They they had no way to interpret it. She gave all of the context and calculations. This was, at the very least, a 50-50 effort, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean... Wow. And she, so she never won. She's still not a Nobel, Nobel laureate. Correct. This is, is there a way to like retroactively be like, no, she should have won. We need to give her a posthumous. There is no such thing as a posthumous Nobel Prize. That's ridiculous. So she was nominated for the Nobel Prize in physics along with Otto Robert. Her nephew. Good. Um, But the committee was really stacked against her. The committee, um, the people on the committee uh, did not like Liza Meitner. Um, It was Maine Siegman and two of his former students. um, And they really valued, like, experimental physics over the theoretical. So they did not recognize that, uh, especially Liza Meitner, had a hand in every step of the work of Han, right? Because they're talking back and forth. They're making decisions together. They're partners, like, 50-50. Like, she's not married to anyone, but, like, they are work husband and work wife, for sure. Like, you cannot have one without the other. And if they had never met, I don't think either one of them would have probably come to these conclusions. Yeah, and so... Um, they, they, they thought that she didn't get the process right enough for discovering fission. And so Niels Bohr is the one who did the experiments to confirm, um, what Liza Meitner and Otto Robert said. So because she didn't actually perform the experiments, she just wrote the recipe Mm -hmm. and told them exactly what's going on and how to do it. Mm -hmm. But because she didn't cook the meal herself. Yes. You know, and and now go sleep. <laughs> she gets no credit. Yes. Fantastic. Good to know. So the, the committee wanted to give Niels Bohr the Nobel Prize in Physics, but no one had nominated him that year. 
Thank God. Meitner herself wrote in a letter, Surely Han fully deserves the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Um, there is really no doubt about that, but I believe that Frisch and I contributed something not insignificant to the clarification of the process of uranium fission. How it originates and that it produces so much energy and that was something very remote to Han. Right, yeah. He never, he, he had no idea what he was, like... Obviously, he knew what he was doing with the experiment, but he had no idea what he was doing with the experiment. Like, he right. had no idea what was happening. He didn't understand what the results meant. Right. He could not interpret it, and she just figured it out while skiing in the Swiss Alps. Um, Wait, I think that's a different country. While skiing in Sweden. <laughs> Sorry. The Swiss Alps, I think, are in... Uh, Switzerland, Switzerland, not yes. Sweden. <laughs> yes, that's why I said, wait, that's a different country. Um, but yeah, so Niels Bohr actually nominated Eliza Breitner and Otto Frisch for fission. That same, like, he was like, yes, give credit to them. And they didn't. They no, they wanted they wanted Niels Bohr. <laughs> yeah, and so so who 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 won the uh, the the physics Nobel Prize that year? Do we know? Um, he not a person related to this at all because I, I looked it up but I was like I didn't want to like be like oh this guy won and, instead and took the rightful thing of life because he's not involved right <laughs> so, and he probably made good advancements himself yeah know? I think it was like a magnetics thing from what I remember looking he was doing some kind of magnetics research okay. so from what I remember so it was just like not involved at all <laughs> We shouldn't be mad at him. He was just an innocent bystander. Exactly. That's why I was like, I, I don't want to include his name in this and be like... <laughs> That's very commendable because I definitely would have badmouthed him. So Liza Meitner was nominated 19 times for the Nobel Prize in Chemistry between 1924 and 1948 and 29 times for the Nobel Prize in Physics between 1937 and 1965 mm -hmm. for a total of 48 times nominated for a Nobel Prize. Probably one of the most nominations for anyone ever. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> 48 times is a lot. Because I looked at the list. I didn't like extensively look at the list of like all the nominations, but like most of the people they get nominated like four or five times and then they win mm -hmm. right or they get nominated once or twice and then they win you know like once you're nominated you usually win pretty you know after very you know, quickly you know sometimes you get like 10 i saw like one person had been nominated 10 times and then won but like 48 times that is for two different nobel prizes yeah and i mean <laughs> literally there's so much of our world that we would not have if it weren't for her and her calculations. Like, you're right. Somebody else would have done it eventually. Right. But she just, she'd been working with this stuff for so long mm -hmm. and just knew. She just figured, she, she, oh my goodness. She was the second woman to ever be nominated for a Nobel Prize in chemistry behind Marie Curie. That's fantastic. But Marie Curie eventually won. Marie Curie won twice. Did she? I didn't realize she won twice. I do know, and this is... So this, one time it shared, but... Yes, one time it was shared, and I, I do know, because I know you, you don't plan on necessarily doing a, an episode on the Curies. Oh, I will eventually. You will eventually, but not yet. But one of my favorite things is that when they were... She had a team with her husband, and I can't remember the other, other gentleman's name, but the husband and the other gentleman were nominated, and both of them were like, yeah, we'll accept the prize, but you got to add Marie to the list. And they were like, nah, never mind. We'll give it to somebody else. And they did that once or twice at least. And finally, after three or four years, the, the Nobel 
Lord, uh, the Newell Mill Committee came to him and was like, fine, we'll include M- Marie, but we're not giving her her, t- her own $10,000. you got to share it. <laughs> and so I think that's really badass that her husband and partner mm-hmm. would not accept the prize without her having recognition. You don't see that a lot. Yeah. Which, Which Otto Hahn sure didn't do that. I was about to say. Kept his mouth nice and shut. Yes. If Otto Hahn had been the good work husband that he should have been, he should have said, no, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Not without Liza. Yeah. Because, um, like, I mean, their their entire career was intertwined. Yeah. Entire career. The whole thing. From start to finish. Absolutely. Was entirely entwined. Yeah. Ugh. Oh frustrating. I wonder what his motivations are. I don't want to like just say oh Otto Hahn you son of a bitch uh, after all this but I'm sure he had reasons mm-hmm. maybe. I mean yeah and honestly they still had a good relationship up until they, they all they died. Like they right. were friends their whole lives. Fantastic. That's So I mean like they like of course you know they had their I'm sure Liza Meitner felt away. <laughs> Right. I mean, you, you, that letter really makes it clear how she felt about Han. Yeah, staying in Germany. Staying in Germany. Um, but, like, I mean, they were still friends. Yeah, so li- to, to finish up Liza's story, um, she publishes her last two papers in 1950 and 1951. She officially retires in 1960 and moves to the U.K. to stay with her relatives, which I'm sure is, like, Otto Robert and um, the rest, like, his, you know, his parents and, and, and everybody. And I'm sure his kids and whoever else lived there at that point. Uh, In the 1950s and 60s, she visits Germany a few times to see Han and his wife. Um, On occasions such as their 70th, 75th, 80th, and 85th birthdays, they addressed um, recollections of each other, like in each other's honors. Mm -hmm. Um, Han always emphasized Meitner's intellectual productivity um, and work such as her research on the nuclear shell model. Um, and of course, always passes over the reasons for her move to Sweden. Right. Um, Meitner emphasizes Han's um, personal qualities a lot, um, his charm and his musical ability. In 1964, uh, Liza Meitner does suffer a, a heart attack. In 1967, she um, broke her hip and then had some, a series of small strokes. How old is she at this time? 1960. She's got to be almost 90. I was about to say, she's got to be in her 90s if she was 60 in at the beginning of World War II. Mm-hmm. So. Or at least closing in on her 90s, at least in her 80s. She's in her 80s, yeah, so. Late 80s. So in 67, she would be 88. 88. I think. Yeah, and so uh, Otto Hahn dies on the July 28, 1968. His wife, Edith, dies on uh, August 14th of the same year. Uh, Liza Meitner was not told of their passings because um, her family thought that it would just upset her. Yeah, and she's in her late 80s. Mm -hmm. And so Liza Meitner passes away in her sleep on October 27th of 1968. So they all die in the same year. How apropos... Um, as her, um, as was her wish, she was buried in the village of Bromley in Hampshire at St. James Parish Church, close to her younger brother. Um, Otto Robert Frisch, um, composed an inscription on her headstone, and it reads, Liza Meitner, a physicist who never lost her humanity. Oh my gosh, that's perfect. Mm -hmm. I love that. Oh, give me chills. Yeah. I love it. So that's the story of Liza Meitner. Oh my goodness. I need to know more about her. She's so interesting. 
and the world would be a completely different landscape without her mm -hmm. and, and Otto Hahn in can you just imagine it everything would be different mm -hmm. so yeah. what are your feelings on it I mean a lot less joking in this one yeah. yeah, World War II is no joke. <laughs> Things get real serious, very tense for a long time. But wow, yeah, I really like this story. I'm so glad you asked me to be here <laughs> and chose Lisa Meitner. I had no idea about her, mm -hmm. and I, I thought you were a good person to like appreciate. Absolutely, appreciate her hard work because, like, again, as someone who's like essentially self-taught in a lot of radio chem stuff, you yeah. know. Yeah, I need, to, I need to, like, read more of her papers. I'm sure I won't understand very much of any of it. But I also feel like it's the genesis of most of it. So mm -hmm. if you're going to glean some sort of understanding, that's probably the best place to start. Mm -hmm. I'm very much looking forward to this. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being my guest on this episode, and thank you to my listeners. Um, please follow Cowboy Chemistry on Instagram at Cowboy Chemistry Podcast. And we're out. Bye. Exit music here. <laughs> That's so awesome. Ah, her show is so cool. Um, Jutz had been arrested and was being kept at Dachau concentration camp. Um, what was he arrested for? Being Jewish. Oh. <laughs> I thought this was... <laughs>